This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Rose Fox, and I'm a senior reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Mark Rotella, senior editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author Morgan Jerkins discusses her new book, This Will Be My Undoing, Living at the Intersection of Black, Female, and Feminist in White America. Then PW Associate News Editor John Marr explores new audiences for poetry. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by NPD BookScan. Not a lot happening over here on the hardcover fiction side, though we do have a new number one and number two. Uh, number one is Dark in Death by J.D. Robb, a.k.a. Nora Roberts. Uh, sold a very respectable 34,000 copies out of the gate, according to BookScan numbers. Uh, this is the 46th novel set in her near-future New York City mm. setting. Uh, we say in our review that it's very enjoyable. It starts when someone plunges an ice pick into the neck of an aspiring Broadway actress while she's watching the shower scene in Psycho. So a very oh, dramatic wow. right. opening. Lieutenant Eve Dallas arrives at the scene to find that somehow nobody witnessed the fatal stabbing. And uh, later a novelist shows up to report that the death is the second that appears to copy a murder from one of her best-selling books. Mm. So we get pretty meta here. Uh, we <laughs> say that Rob expertly ratchets up the suspense as the endgame approaches in this deadly chess match between Eve and her cunning opponent. And uh, they've announced a first printing of 750,000 copies. Mm -hmm. Usually not a problem for yeah. J.D. Rob to make those numbers. Great. And just below that uh, is Still Me by Jojo Moyes at number two. Uh, we have a review of this that hasn't run yet, but is just about to. We say that uh, the beloved Lou Clark returns uh, following me before you and after you in a crowd-pleasing work that follows the irresistible Lou as she travels from her home in England to New York City. And uh, she uh, this time is going to be the assistant to someone ultra wealthy and uh, kind of grapples with that and a bunch of culture shock and class shock as she uh, helps her employer to weather the vicious gossip from New York society ladies. And uh, we say that Moise's many fans and newcomers alike will be satisfied by the humor, the riveting story and realistic and well-developed characters. And that's at number two. Moving down at number 11, The Graves, A Fine and Private Place, a Flavia de Luce novel by Alan Bradley. And uh, this is the ninth book in the series set in England in 1952. And uh, Flavia is 12 years old and after the wake of a family tragedy is contemplating suicide. And so oh. she's trying to deal with increased tension between her and her two older sisters. And so they end up on an extended boat trip that goes awry. And we say, as usual, Bradley makes the improbable series conceit work and relieves the plot's inherent darkness with clever humor. 
And finally, down at number 20, Hellbent by Greg Hurwitz, the third Orphan X novel. We say it's thrilling. Uh, and in this one, Evan Smoke, who once worked as an assassin for a covert U.S. government agency and now helps people in trouble, violates one of the agency's fundamental commandments to never make it personal. Uh, we say that the master killer hoping for redemption and struggling to relate to others emotionally may be a genre cliche, but uh, there are some specific details, such as him sleeping on a bed levitated by <laughs> magnets, that are sure to please fans of the Roger Moore Bond films. Oh, wow. uh, they announced the first printing for this of 150,000 copies, and, uh, and it's it's just starting out this week, but I think it's going to be climbing the list a bit. And that's what we've got. All right. Well, let's see. Nonfiction. Uh, we've got a new number two. Uh, crush it! Exclamation point. Why now is the time to cash in on your passion? And here we have a uh, entrepreneur, uh, Gary uh, Vaynerchuk, who is kind of giving a rallying cry to the banner of turning your passion into a career. Uh, and he talks about his taking over his father's liquor store and building it from a four million business to a fifty million dollar one. And uh, so that is at number two. Then we have. At number five, Dirty Jeans. Uh, this is G-E-N-E-S, a breakthrough program to treat the root cause of illness and optimize your health. So it's a health book right there. Uh, and then we have at number eight, If You Only Knew, My Unlikely Unavoidable Story of Becoming Free by Jamie Ivey. Uh, in this book, Ivey talks about uncovering flaws, personal flaws, and unintentionally blocking the beauty of God's grace. So uh, this is a Christian-themed title. And then we have at number 15, The Culture Code, The Secrets of Highly Successful Groups. Uh, and this is a toolkit for building a cohesive, innovative culture from the uh, author of Daniel Coyle wrote The Talent Code. It was a New York Times bestseller. And finally, at number 18, Rise and Kill First, The Inside Story and Secret Operations of Israel's Assassination Program by Ronan Bergman. And this is a story of Mossad, Shinbet, and the IDF's targeted killing programs. And uh, that's who we have. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Morgan Jerkins tells us how she's reclaiming her humanity as a black woman. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Peter Manso, author of The Apparitionists, and you are listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Morgan Jerkins on the line. Her new book is This Will Be My Undoing. Hello, Morgan. So glad you could join us. Thank you so much for having me. So in our starred review of your book, we say that your essays uh, force uh, readers to reckon with the humanity black women have consistently been denied. So, so tell us about that. Right. So... I started my career, or professional career rather, in 2014, and that was a time when I was just writing for as many publications as I could, and I was also trying to establish a sort of online community through Twitter, which I am still an avid user. And what I was being informed of, either through threads or even through my own research, was that Black women are often ignored. Um, they're often seen as footnotes, for example, for talking about the Black Lives Matter movement. It's often ignored that it was started by queer black women. Um, and I was thinking about, for example, in pop culture, like the movie Hidden Figures, and thinking about just why is it that black women are always being ignored, our accomplishments, oftentimes the things that we say, and 
have, you know, our stories and our histories can often be erased. So this book was a way in which I could position myself as the narrator and also as a protagonist, combining both, both cultural commentary and personal experience to talk about what it's like to be a young Black woman in America. Tell us a little bit more about that online community you found. It sounds like it was really formative for you. Absolutely. So when I graduated from Princeton in 2014, I did not get a job uh, and it devastated me. I was applying for editorial assistant positions, uh, entry level positions in publishing, period. And I just assumed that because, you know, the, the job descriptions were like, you need a four year college degree, you need to love books or write down the five books that you like. And because I had a Princeton degree and I had done multiple unpaid literary internships, I thought I had it in the bag and I didn't. So it was very devastating for me, both financially to go to from New Jersey and also just emotionally. I'm to graduate with such a high from this great university, but having no job to show for it. So when I moved back home, I was on uh, Twitter for an embarrassingly high amount of hours per day. And it was during that time when I saw that editors were hungry for personal essays from young women. At the same time, the murder of Michael Brown and the spark of the Black Lives Matter movement also had editors saying, hey, we need black voices to talk about this occurrence that keeps happening over and over again, as well as race in general, race and gender in general. We're missing these voices from the outside of our newsrooms. And so I sort of, my career burgeoned right in the middle of that. I was writing personal essays and I was also writing about police brutality. And a lot of my voice was informed by the people who were coming up in their freelance careers at the same time I was, as well as the people who were just writing 10 to 30 tweet threads about misogynoir, which is the hatred of, hatred of black women, um, trans women epidemics in America, uh, the uneven emotional labor between men and women in heterosexual relationships, all of these things for free. And it definitely fueled my understanding of how race, gender, and class intersect in the country. So a lot of my, so a lot of my knowledge and a lot of my, I would like to say, fever behind my voice um, came from Twitter and watching other people and allowing myself to sit back and be taught, for lack of a better phrase. So in your book, in your essays, how do you tackle these subjects? They're huge. What's an entry point for you? Entry point was starting with myself. I remember when I was writing my book proposal, um, for those that don't know, so when you are pitching an essay collection, submitting it to eight editors of publishing houses, you have to construct a book proposal. And one of the things you have to include, for the most part, are sample essays. And as soon as I sat down and said, I want to write about intersectional feminism, I want to write about black girlhood and womanhood, this moment of me wanting to be a cheerleader when I was 10 years old just immediately came to the forefront. I didn't even have to think about it. And so starting with myself first and making it abundantly clear that even though I am a black woman and I can share similarities and experiences from other black women, I cannot speak for all of them and explaining my story and then making sure I branch outward. So the entry point was with me. Let's talk about that essay that you just referred to. I mean, you, you write about mm -hmm. um, failing to make that all-white cheerleading squad. Can, can you take us to that essay to that point? 
certainly. So when I was 10 years old, I idolized cheerleaders, particularly white cheerleaders, because I loved watching TV and I loved watching movies. And I kept seeing that a white girl who was a cheerleader was always the quintessential beautiful girl. All the guys wanted her. She was allowed to be stuck up and, you know, have a lot of flaws. And I wanted to be like that. I idolized it. And so I wanted to try out for the cheerleading squad. Um, I wanted to know what it was like to be desirable in that way. Um, I was an incredibly insecure child. I did not have, uh, I did not take comfort in my identity. And therefore, I wanted to be subsumed by somebody else's. And so cheerleading trials were underway. And I devoted a painstaking amount of effort to the tryouts and trying to get my moves correctly. And then the tryouts happened. And granted, there were probably only, I was one of only about four other black girls who were trying out amongst like 30 other white girls. And even then, I think that is still an underestimation. And none of the black girls made it, including myself. And I was devastated. Um, days went by and I got over it. And I was in an argument with a friend of mine, a friend of mine who was not a black girl, but a woman, but another girl of color. And one of the things that she said to me that I never forgot, and I think that was sort of like the, the, the mic drop that I couldn't say anything more was she told me, you know, you know why, the, you know, you didn't make cheerleading squads because they don't accept monkeys like you on the team. Hmm. And when I think about it as an adult, I think about it as, okay, that is when the traumatic part started. When I was a kid, I was like, oh, my gosh, that's mean. And it's funny because I did a book event yesterday and someone said to me, oh, you know, did you still be in friends with her? And I said, yeah, I just sort of glossed over it, thought it was mean and left it at that. But when I, now that I'm an adult and I think back to that moment, I'm like, yeah, that was pretty traumatizing because it made me reflect on what is it that I was actually trying out for for the cheerleading squad and whether or not I was being seen as inhumane or seeing myself as inhumane the entire time. So you felt as though you were really trying out for whiteness in a way and being turned down. Yes, whiteness and a chance to be human, which I thought was so closely linked to whiteness. And it's very interesting because, you know, as a child, you don't know the terms like respectability politics or code switching or assimilation. But even as a young kid, I still knew deep down what those words meant because I was trying to implement them in my small life. And how old were you? And and this was in New Jersey? Yes, I think I was about 10 years old. Mm. And it's clear that the other kids also knew what those words meant and, and sort of knew what you wanted and knew that it was their job to deny it to you. Like everybody right. was, everybody was caught up in these racial dynamics, even at an age where you didn't have words for them and you didn't necessarily know how to point to what was going on. Right. And still to this day, like, I'm not sure if the, the, the girl or now woman knew what she meant by what she said. Um, I don't remember even telling anybody what she said. Um, and I don't know if it was because I just wanted the argument to be over or what, but it stayed with me evidently. Uh, over, you know, like 15, well, stayed with me 15 years later, and I had to sort of think about it. In in your writing, we say is often personal, and when you talk about blackness, um, you talk about it as a label and as an honor. Uh, we see the label. Talk talk to us about the honor. Right. So, 
there's an essay in the book where I talk about, you know, being, you know, someone asking me, you know, why is it that you present as a black woman? Why can't you just, you know, why can't you just present as a human? And so you see, once again, this interplay between, you know, what people think are diametrically opposed identities to humanity. And it was very difficult for me because I thought, well, what does a black woman present like? And why can't I call myself that when I'm proud to call myself that? Um, and so when I think about, you know, this idea of like a label, this is what this is what I am. And this is not something that, you know, it's it's sort of it was thrust upon me, you know, living in some society and dealing with the legacies of slavery. You know, I, I am a black woman, but I also don't see that as a detriment or sort of like a barrier for someone to understand. Me. I think of it as an honor. I think of it as an honor because I think about, you know, who I come from. I think about the people who constantly inform me and constantly influence culture are black women. And so it's very hard, you know, when you get in these spaces with those who do not look like yourself and you're just being you. You know, you know that your experiences are informed by your race and your gender and your class and oftentimes your sexuality as well. But you don't belabor the point. But then someone stops you and says, why do you even use those labels to begin with? As if I can just cast them off. Because a lot of people don't understand that, you know, when we think of, of, you know, human, just straight human or person, usually we think of white people because they're usually cast as unraced while everybody else is people of color. So it's very hard for me to say, well, why can I just be human? Because that's not how society treats me. It's just as a human. And, does, and society does not treat everyone the same according to just being a human. They, they don't. And so I have to acknowledge that. And what I hope is that other people acknowledge that as well. How do you extrapolate something like that from your personal experience to the broader essay? You said you don't want to speak for all black women, but um, you're trying to universalize or explore the ramifications of these things in a lot of ways. Right. So, you know, when I started the book, I, well, towards the end of the first chapter, I tell myself that I cannot speak for all black women. And so I have to make that point clear because if anybody's familiar with um, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie's uh, speech that she talks about the danger of a single mm -hmm. story, yeah. she talks about this idea of, you know, white people expect for you as soon as one, you know, person of color, in this case, a black woman has this sort of prominence to a certain extent and they talk about black people, then they have to speak for all of them and they can't. You know, I understand that privilege, privilege in certain ways informs my experiences. But when I talk about, for example, hair um, and how black women's hair is often mocked or degraded, when I talk about street harassment, um, when I talk about these statistics that we see in mass media that tell women, black women particularly, that, you know, if you become too successful, you're unmarriageable or you're undesirable. These are things that all black women have to digest. Even if, you know, they may be in a relationship or their hair may not be as kinky or thick as some other black girl. You know what I'm saying? It's like they these are these still hyper conscious messages that they're still receiving at large. So even though I have to talk about my personal experience, because, you know, I, I, I guess as a read, you know, as a reader, you can't always just go by these large ideas. You have to make it personal, intimate, because it, it because it's such a personal, intimate thing to talk about my to talk about black womanhood and what it means to me. But also to make sure I'm by 
show people that I don't exist in a vacuum either. And a lot of these things that I'm feeling, I am living in the same society that other black women live in. And there are patterns that are going that that is affecting my personal life. You've mentioned sex and sexuality a couple of times, and uh, one of your essays talks about the sexualization of black women's bodies and the idea that you have to be ashamed of your sexuality in order to be taken seriously in the white world. How do you poke at that? I mean, that's a, again, that's a, that's a huge topic. Right. It started from a phrase that I've always heard even now, and it's called fast-tailed girls. Mm. And it's very interesting because I have never heard someone tell me what it means. It's one of those phrases that you just learn through the context. And the best way I can put it is that it's slut shaming, but it's also racialized. I, in in all my 25 years of living, I have never heard of such a loaded term for black boys and men on the equivalent of that's equivalent to fast told girl. And what I wanted to talk about was the ways in which black girls are sexualized from the beginning, from that phrase that we often hear, or we can take it even further. You know, we think about, you know, when, when the Rutgers University women's basketball team were called nappy headed hoes, you know, when they were just playing a basketball game, but yet you, but yet a white radio host poked fun at their hair and both, you know, there's opposed promiscuity. And so what I wanted to get at with this whole idea of like sexuality is like, where is the room for us to explore ourselves? If you already mark us as disgusting in a way, if you already mark us as being blood, when we, when some of us are too young, to even know what that means. How are we going to have the space and the liberty to be able to make our own sexual choices when it seems like we're already targeted? We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Morgan Jerkins, author of This Will Be My Undoing. Um, Tell us a little bit about the subtitle of your title also, because I I think there's a lot going on there. Yeah, so I... (laughs) Honestly, like that was the subtitle was created by my team. I just came up with the first part. Uh, this will be my undoing. And I was so shocked that they even let me keep the first part of that. Um, because it, it seemed, I thought it was afraid, I was afraid that it was seen as too abstract, too ominous, maybe. Mm. And so the subtitle was supposed to ground it a little bit more. Like, this is what I'm trying to tell you about myself but in order to do that I have to go backwards and undo the memories that I kept secret for so long and unpack them and uncontextualize them and so when it's when the subtitle says like living at the intersection of black female feminist and white America it's saying that you know these are all of the identities that I'm trying to deal with at the same time that I'm living in a culture that often ignores or tries to silence what I try to say. And so 
what I wanted people to get from the subtitle is that I try to make the book as interdisciplinary as possible, that I'm trying to make it both personal and showing, you know, sociocultural context. And letting people know, again, like this is, you know, if you see me on the cover, like I'm a, I'm a black woman, but I'm also saying that this is a feminist text as well, because and it's informed and it's influenced by my race and gender. So you also laud Beyonce's Lemonade as, as art that finally represents black women as entire complex human beings. Uh, what, what did that spark for you and how is it shifting the landscape of black women's art? Well, man, that's a great question. What I'll say is when Lemonade was released on HBO that night, I felt a cultural shift. I had to write about it for uh, Elle magazine, the digital side of it. And then I was also online um, reading people's thoughts, particularly black women's thoughts in real time as they were watching it. And there was a feeling that everyone was sharing that was beyond moved. It was maybe rattled, maybe shaken, but transformed. And so was I. And I think I I wanted to write about it because Beyonce has been a staple figure in my life since I was about six years old. Um, and to think about how much she has constantly evolved as a writer, as an artist, excuse me, um, is very inspiring. But also to talk about what this particular special meant for so many Black women because you have this black woman who shows all different types of black women, many, excuse me, many different types of black women in her program and taking us through the different stages, the, the vicissitudes of one's emotions and giving herself ample time through the lyrics and the melodies and the, and the many different beautiful theme changes in Louisiana to talk about how she comes to this triumphant finish. So as a writer, I'm very interested in exploring black women's interiorities however you know jagged or dizzying they may appear and i think that lemonade accomplished bringing that to the visual form and so i felt i had to write about it i was on twitter also um, for that for that moment more as an observer but i could really see that it was that it was shaking people up not just to see these depictions, but for what they implied for Beyonce's power as a, as a maker of culture, as an influencer of culture. Yeah, right. And I, I've never seen anything like it. I and mean, she, she'd clearly poured a tremendous amount of money, time, resources. And there was also who she chose to lift up with her work. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I, I noticed on uh, Twitter you recently commented on uh, the Quincy Jones uh, interview and the Vulture. Was it you who'd said, uh, I'm, I'm trying to follow, you would like to uh, see a, a, a black queer voice uh, a la Quincy Jones on this subject? Yes, that was me. Tell us about that. Well, I one of the things, one of the, the biggest takeaways that I received um, from that interview, as well as many other Black people that I'm following, is when he was divulging the facts, well, divulging the allegations, rather, I guess I should say, um, that Marlon Brando slept with James Baldwin, Marvin Gaye, and then Richard Pryor, who I just discovered that his his widow confirmed that they they did sleep together. And it was very interesting because I wanted to pay close attention to what queer black men were saying 
because it's very easy for me as a straight woman or for other people who are not, who, who do not identify as not as as black or queer it's like oh this is scandalous when evidently these types of affairs have been happening for decades but what are the historical implications of them and why does it still seem very gossipy now and so that's why i wanted to write wanted to read writing from black queer men about this new revelation that may arguably not be new at all. And what does it say about the, that time period versus this time period now? Especially when the ways in which we think about Black masculinity uh, and when it comes to sexuality. And tell us how you incorporate uh, elements like that into your essays. I, I feel like throughout our conversation, you've touched on sexuality as a topic that interests you um, and queer sexualities mm -hmm. and elevating queer voices. Right. One of the ways in which I tackled it was talking about street harassment. When black women talk about street harassment, um, what I was seeing, and I was trying to see, okay, you know, what, what about black men, for example? What does it have? Because the reason why I want to talk about it, because it was a, there was an anecdote that I brought up in the book about a woman, I think her name, her last name is Roberts, Shoshana Roberts, who was like 24 years old and was walking through several different Manhattan, several different New York City neighborhoods. And she was being catcalled all day long. And one of the things, one of the criticisms that I read from someone was that, well, most of the people that are catcalling her are Black and Latinx men. And it just paints them as the aggressive as if white men don't also catcall as well. And so, when I started having these con these conversations with other black men and women, black men would say, well, you know, I don't understand why saying good morning or have a nice day is considered sexual harassment. And, you know, to be fair, I said, okay, I get it. I guess you're just trying to be nice, but what about the woman who fears for her safety? And so when I wrote about this one evening where this man was trying to sell me tickets to a particular concert, and he was raising his voice and he wanted me to take his number down. And he was being a little bit aggressive. I had to deal with that because I thought maybe, you know, I feel scared. I'm terrified. I'm not from the city. But I had to keep going back and forth to myself and wondering what if he was just being nice? What if he, there was no ill intention whatsoever? But as I kept doing that and taking up for him, I kept doubting my instincts as a person, as a woman. And so I try to talk about that in a way that's like, hey, you know, a lot of times, like I, when it comes to me as a black woman, I'm often conditioned to protect other people. And that falls into the very dangerous stereotype of strong black woman. And so it's like, I'm supposed to be the pillar of my community. I'm supposed to protect other people, particularly black men. But if I tell them, you know, this was wrong, it may often seem like as if I'm trying to be their adversary. And how can we reconcile these, you know, often contradictory feelings? So when you were writing the essays for this book, did you intend them mm -hmm. to be put together in a book in the uh, sort of from the beginning, or were you writing them for different purposes and then bringing them all together? Well, there are certain paragraphs in particular chapters, like when I'm talking about my labiaplasty, um, when I'm talking about what it's like first moving to New York and dealing with people saying something on the street. Um, those particular parts I did uh, take from essays that are recently published online, but the vast majority of those essays are original. 
And I wanted them to be in a book because so many of these essays, like the first essay, for example, Monkeys Like You, or the essay that I'm talking about, like Hunger for Men's Eyes, those are long essays where I have to admit these painful memories, admit how wrong I was, and also show you where I'm at now. And when you're writing essays online, a lot of times you only get maybe 1,500 words, 2,000, hmm. 2,500. And I needed more space to be able to really pull out what I'm trying to say. And so, yeah, so when I knew that I was going to write a book, I knew that certain essays like that, they had to be in a book. They could not be in any other form. And what was the inspiration to write the book in the first place? Was there a moment when you knew you just had to? My agent encouraged me. Uh, just a little bit of background. I started writing... Uh, well, non-professionally, when I was 14 years old, started writing fiction as a way to deal with uh, the, the daily harassment I would receive from my peers. Um, and so I started writing, and then I went to MFA at Bennington writing seminars and for fiction as well. <laughs> One of my advisors was Alex Chi. Mm. Um, and so my agent said to me, you know, you're doing all this work online. You're gaining a really uh, strong portfolio. Why don't you write a, 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 an essay collection about black women? And I thought about it and I looked at, you know, my work online and I thought that I was naturally going in that direction. And I said, okay, why not? And you have uh, two other books uh, coming down the pike. Tell us about them. Yes. So the next project that I'm doing is going to be called Why We Get Out. And it is inspired by the movie Get Out. And basically what I'm going to be doing is writing about the ways in which black people pass down these behaviors things and customs as a way to protect ourselves. Um, but from the outside looking in, it may seem that we're being fear, fearful, paranoid. And that sort of demonstrates uh, the conflicting realities that Black people often have to face. And then the third project that I'm doing is a novel called Call Baby. And in African-American folklore, it's often said that those who are born with a call um, have second sights. They can usually see the present or the future and the past, and they also have healing properties. So I'm going to be writing about female call bearers, um, who, female call bearers and, and non-call bearers um, who are united through motherhood, whether biological or counterfeit, and it's all going to take place in present-day Harlem. Well, that sounds tremendously exciting. We can't wait to see them. Thank you so much. We've been talking with Morgan Jerkins, and you can find her book, This Will Be My Undoing, in stores right now. Morgan, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure speaking with you, too. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Associate News Editor John Barr will talk about new audiences for poetry, so stay tuned. I'm Armistead Maupin, the author of the memoir, Logical Family. And you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. Today, PW Associate News Editor John Maurer is here to tell us all about what is happening in poetry, which is uh, some very exciting things. Hi, John. Hello, Rose. Hi, Mark. We just ran this article that you wrote uh, talking about Rupi Carr and uh, this sort of digital Instagram-driven revolution that's happening in poetry. What's going on? 
<laughs> well, it really depends on who you talk to. Uh, everybody has a different take. The booksellers have a different take. The publishers have a different take. The poets have a different take. The bloggers have a different take. The people who create online content for a living have a different take. I guess bloggers count in that regard. Sure. But it's it's really it's this extremely divisive form of poetry that really could be, depending on how you take it, a very old form of poetry or a very new form of poetry. So a little background, Ruby Carr is published by Andrews McNeil, which uh, for the most part throughout what it, uh, through its, its publishing history has been very, very aware of trends um, and has also published a lot of puzzles and game books, comics, humor books, gift books, things like that. Uh, so they also had a big, big part in the beginning of the coloring book trend from the adult coloring book trend from a couple of years ago. And they also sort of had this massive role now in what is a significant bump in poetry sales that we've seen over the past couple of years, last year especially, and, and the bulk of that is Rupi Carr. Uh, so Rupi Carr is, uh, I believe she is a Sikh poet. Uh, she is uh, Canadian, too, I think. She operated primarily at, the, at first on Instagram. Um, and Andrew McNeil published her debut collection in 2015 called Milk and Honey. It had a big year in 2015, and I think it had a big year in 2016, too, but not the kind of year it had in 2017. 2017, it sold, I think she sold a combined 1.6 million copies of books. Wow. Uh, wow. Both Milk and Honey and its follow-up, The Sun and Her Flowers. This is poetry. I mean, that never happens. That hasn't. That doesn't happen with any of the big-selling poetry authors. Mary Oliver's Devotions last year uh, sold like thirty-five thousand copies, something like that. The accurate numbers in the piece. Um, but like even your Billy Collinses and your you know your other popular, well-known poets, they don't sell like this. So we are seeing something that's very new. So what is going on, and what does Instagram have to do with this? Well, so this is where it gets a little interesting. The style of poetry that she writes is very Instagrammable. It is short. It is punchy. It is uh, very, some, some would call it trite. Uh, and I think sort of all of this is, is fair, depending on what perspective you have on it. Uh, but she published originally her poetry on Instagram. They were these short little poems that were arranged in a way that made them make a lot of sense visually. Uh, they're not, you know, 30-line poems or sonnets or whatever. And those, those kind of poems, if you put them on Instagram, people's eyes would blaze over and they just go right by it. It's, it's a very visual medium, and it requires a visual take on whatever is being put up on it. Ruby Carr seemed to figure out exactly how to do that. And McMeal, which had been trafficking in this sort of what we could call inspirational poetry since it picked up uh, Long Liev, a, an Australian poet in 2014, who originally self-published but then became a bestseller with McNeil, uh, they saw Rupi Carr and thought, oh, this is exactly what we've been publishing. This is a trend. Let's pick up on it. So they did. Um, and since then, they have dominated the list. More than half of the top 20 best-selling poetry books from 2017 were Andrews McNeil titles. And that's just I mean, for a publisher that it, this is not Norton, this is not FSG, this is not Grey Wolf, this is not a traditional, even larger traditional poetry publisher. This is a publisher that follows trends, and it found one, and it took it home. Some 
in the industry, specifically poets and the media people who benefit from causing a hubbub online and getting a lot of clicks, <laughs> uh, have basically, you know, painted Ruby Carr as this like villain who is robbing more traditional, shall we say, or poets of a different type and form and stature of their sales, which is, according to the publishers, kind of bogus. Pretty much every publisher I spoke to said that, in fact, poetry sales for them have increased. Uh, and if anything, they kind of see Rupee Cars as a sort of gateway drug. Uh, one even mentioned that booksellers are more interested in stocking poetry and more interested in talking to poetry publishers about possible volumes to include because they're getting more people going to the poetry section because that's where Rupee Car is. Uh, there's a whole other angle to this, too, which is uh, one that Andrews McNeil kind of pushes as well, which is this isn't non-traditional poetry. This is very much in the tradition of Rumi or Hafiz, a, a sort of meditative, inspirational, not faith-based in her case, but still inspirational poetry uh, that's been practiced for thousands of years. The only difference that they claim is that it's published on Instagram and not in another outlet, and then republished as a book, of course. I think there's there's sort of merit on, on both sides here in that, you know, she certainly is not in conversation with uh, what we would think of as the grand American poetic tradition. Uh, there's an article on, I think it was Deadspin, that basically accused Ruby Carr of having no interest in reading anything whatsoever. Uh, it seems a little <laughs> intense. But I personally find it a little hard to believe that, like, when she's writing, she's thinking about, you know, Emily Dickinson and Wallace Stevens and Marianne Moore and Robert Lowell and Elizabeth Bishop. I, I, I can't imagine that that is something that she would be doing. But I also don't think it really matters. If this poetry is giving poetry across the board a bump and publishers are noticing it and booksellers are working with publishers to place more poetry in the stores, isn't this good for everybody, regardless of what it looks like? Right. I mean, that seems very reasonable to me. And uh, it, it's, I, I love some of the quotes that you have in your piece, because it seems like all of the people who are actually publishing poetry are pretty down to earth about it. It's, it's kind of not an end of the business that you get into expecting to make a million bucks. And so um, it sounds like they're much more on the sort of rising tide lifts all boats approach. Right. I think that is the case. And I think also, you know, it, in a lot of cases for publishers, and this may not be the case for poets because they don't see, for instance, a bunch of headlines online about their work. They just see it about Ruby Cars. And that makes sense. I mean, perspective is everything. But for publishers, I think they think of this as sort of like, well, on the top end, big five publishers that are, you know, always concerned about a bottom line are probably looking at this and thinking, okay, well, there are ways that we can tap into this trend. There are also ways that we can, you know, buoy our own work that does not tap into this trend just based on bookseller interest in poetry. Uh, and ultimately, if they're seeing the sales go up, they're seeing the sales go up. Like, whether or not Rupee is responsible at some point is irrelevant. Poetry is in the conversation, in public discourse in a way that it hasn't been in years, and they can only benefit from it. Likewise, when you look at small publishers, really small publishers, independent publishers that, that are, you know, these presses that, that make poetry because they love to make poetry, and it doesn't matter how much they sell as long as they can keep the doors open, for them, it's also beneficial 
because, uh, and this was uh, the uh, managing director, I think, from from uh, Noemi Press talked about this. Like a lot of them teach poetry in 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 colleges and their students come in having read Rupi Carr and all of a sudden they can say, okay, well, how about you read, try this next? Okay. Well, how about you try this next? And all of a sudden you have these people reading poetry that they never would have accessed before, uh, because there's a poet who is making waves all over the place, regardless of whether or not that poet is a poet in what we would call, you know, the grand American tradition of poetry or, or traditional American poetry. Is she Emily Dickinson? Is she Walt Whitman? No. But does it matter if the poems are selling? Does it matter if it prompts more conversation about what poetry is? I think that is sort of where a lot of the publishers are landing is that, well, at least they're talking about and buying poetry. <laughs> <laughs> and one of the people you talked with was a Norton Vice President, Jill Bielowski, who mentioned The Odyssey by Emily Wilson, the, uh, the first English translation by a woman. And I hadn't thought of that as poetry. I sort of think of it as a classic. Uh, but of course, it absolutely is poetry. It's an epic poem. And I saw people saying around the end of last year that it was the holiday gift to give or be given if you were a, a woman in academia or in mm. the literary world that everybody was talking about, you know, finding it under the Christmas tree. And it was just huge. And uh, I don't remember the last time I saw a buzz like that about uh, what is basically an epic poem. Right. And especially an 8,000 year old one. Right. And I think that, you know, that says something too. There's, you know, one of the, one of the headlines, I think it was the cut piece, which, which the New York times described as savage, uh, <laughs> the cut, uh, at the, the New York magazine vertical wrote a piece about Rupi Carr that was very quietly, extremely negative. Uh, not, you know, not too brazen about it, but like if you were reading between the lines, you knew exactly what they were trying to do. Uh, and I believe the headline was something like, um, you know, the the poet who's outselling Homer 10,000 to one. Well, yes, but Homer is still selling and a translation by a woman at that. And may I add that this is another book that had a ton of headlines and a ton of coverage in the media. I, you know, for a couple of weeks, I saw a different piece every day and not just from the New York times and the guardian, there was plenty right. of stuff going on there. So I do think that, you know, this is, this is something we're seeing too. It's, it's not, if there's, if there's good poetry that's positioned well in the market and the advertising and marketing campaign is effective and people are hearing about it, then they're going to read it and Rupi Carr is not going to stop them. If anything, you know, the, pe the people who only know Rupi Carr as a poet don't think of anybody but Rupi Carr and maybe, you know, Shakespeare and go back into the, you know, the stacks in the bookstore and see Rupi Carr next to, um, I don't know, W.S. Merwin and Denez Smith and, you know, and Laylee Long Soldier, maybe they'll pick up something new. Well, thank you so much, John. It's always great to have you on the show, and we uh, definitely appreciate you bringing this up to us. I love it when you let me run my mouth for 15 minutes or more. <laughs> Thanks for having me. And we love to hear it. Every time. <laughs> and now a final word from our sponsors. Beyond the headlines, beyond the routine, beyond the book, I'm Chris Keneally, host of Copyright Clearance and his podcast series, Beyond the Book. And I'm Andrew Albanese, Senior Writer at Publishers Weekly. Join us each Friday for a publishing news week in review podcast unlike any other. 
Learn all the breaking news and catch the best analysis on developments in the book trade, copyright law, and much more. You already know business as usual. Now go Beyond the Book. Listen to the free series and subscribe at beyondthebook.com. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. And you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for another scintillating author interview. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcast on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode stream live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 